Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Joint Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and Keller Williams agent. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group's about networking and doing deals. This ain't your grandma's Rhea, folks. No sales from the front. And when I say no sales from the front, we're not going to sell any courses ever. And no smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. You know what I'm talking about. RDI is also this podcast where once a week I sit down with interesting and successful business people getting shit done. And I pick their brain for your entertainment and hopefully education. And if you enjoyed this podcast, help me out, man. The thing you can do the most that would help me out is review it on iTunes. I don't make this shit up, but that helps a lot. Um, iTunes doesn't do much and reviews moves it up. Also, give it a like, share it across social media. I really appreciate it. And subscribe. If you have any comments or suggestions, go to RenegadeDetroit.com. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess, and I'm on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess. Some other sucker got Jeremy Burgess. I was a little late to the show on that one. So Jeremy A. Burgess on Snapchat and go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. All right, legal disclaimer. Don't blame me. It's the way of the world, folks. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I and or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend before we make any investment decision or decisions, you contact a lawyer, an attorney, and or other licensed professionals. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. All right. Time for the show quote. Every week, I try and pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and hopefully the rest of your week. I also try and tie it to the guest and... I don't know Tom that well, but I I think I maybe hit on something. You'll let me know. Living at risk is jumping off the cliff and building your wings on the way down. Ray Bradbury. Living at risk is jumping off the cliff and building your wings on the way down. Let me introduce you to my guest, Tom Wooderson. Tom started investing in real estate a little over three years ago. He graduated from Michigan State University where he studied supply chain management and he worked for five years in corporate America with three of those years in Chicago. He is an active, very active real estate agent, flipper, wholesaler, hard money lender, and landlord. He is on track to fix and flip 15 properties this year. And he was also on the Joe Fairless podcast, as well as a featured millennial on Jet Fuel. At the beginning of 2016, he quit his full-time job to pursue his real estate career full-time. And... Just recently got married. Congratulations. Thank you. And had an amazing trip. Looked like all over Italy. Posted the pictures all over Facebook. It looked yeah. nothing short of amazing. Great trip. It was awesome. It was Amalfi a Coast. Yeah, yep. the pictures hurt to look at, man. One month vacation, getting back in the swing of things. It was uh, mini retirement. Yeah, well, fun. you only get married once and you went with a bang, it looks like. Yeah. It looks, well, hopefully, right? Hopefully you only get married once. And that looked <laughs> like an amazing honeymoon. Yeah, so. it was phenomenal. A lot of fun. Oh, man, it was great. Definitely check him out. He has a YouTube channel, but the link is so long, I'm not going to read it. So I'm going to put all this in the show notes, right? He was also on the Joe Fairless and the Jet Fuel. Please, those links are in the show notes as well. And you should definitely go check out what he's doing. If you go to michiganpropertyrescue.com, michiganpropertyrescue.com. And he may have some other social links. I wasn't sure. I will put it all in the show notes, folks, so you don't have to guess. And I definitely think you should go listen I thought they were good to the other podcasts as well. One's a podcast and one's like a short video, like 28 minutes. It's pretty cool. Right. So 
Welcome, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, you're a young man. Yep. You did the whole college thing, and you went and did five years. Was your plan always to go to college and go into the corporate world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, growing up, it was stay by the books, go to school, go to college, get a good degree, go out, get a good job, you know, provide for the family type of thing. So that was always the the, the route and path I was, I guess, pushed to take by my family. So, um, you know, that's where I've been uh, prior to doing real estate full time. Supply chain management, though, like what? what? What makes somebody want to get in supply chain management? You know, I went Tom. to college. I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, I was going to do general business. I had interest in business uh, and supply chain management was tossed around. Michigan State has like the number two program in the nation for uh, supply okay. chain management. I heard it pays well. So I said, sure, I'll be a supply <laughs> chain manager. You know, it's either logistics, operations or procurement. Sounded interesting. Switched my major to supply chain management from general management and Graduated with supply chain management degree, so all right, so kind of fell into it. So it's a high performance, good school. So kind of maybe the the high quality eliteness kind of attracted you to it, right? right? A lot of job opportunities when you get out of college. Well, supposedly, right? So uh, it seemed like a good path for me. Not too bad. Now, is your your family is like are they corporate, more traditional? No, do they do any real estate investing or any investing at all? Yeah, definitely traditional. My dad uh, worked for automotive for about twenty five years. Um, he was also in. Uh, supply chain management-esque type position. So he was kind of pushing it and he said, this is the path you want to take and uh, not active in real estate at all. Uh, he owns you know, a lake house up north, so he owns two properties, but not from an investment standpoint, just for a leisure yeah. vacation standpoint. So Nice place to hang out. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. a lot of fun. To the go good through. life. You put in all the years and now yeah. he wants the good life. So. Yep. Is it like more traditional investments like 401k? Yep, 401k yeah. stocks, you know, low low performing type investments, I would say. So we don't really see eye to eye on some of those kind of more <laughs> risky type investments, but it's a good thing. You know, I teach him something and he teaches me things about how to be more conservative and things like that. So, yeah, well, I think at your age and I would say my age too, you're at the capital accumulation phase, right? Mm-hmm. And that is just by definition a more risky phase than you know, protecting your capital, right? right. How, how can you grow capital without taking risk? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now I don't have any kids, so I only have to provide for my wife. I know we can get by bare minimum if need be. So we're, I'm a little bit more aggressive and more of a risk taker in my investing strategy at this moment. So yeah. And and then that capital accumulation phase that that makes a lot of sense. So what happened between elite college, right? I'm going to mm-hmm. do the supply chain management. I'm going to do five five years corporate. This is it. I'm going. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to save the money. You're out of Chicago. You're working hard. I watched the jet fuel please and all that, and it was obvious you're driven. And you had a lot of side hustles. So was it the was it the side hustles that did you? It was had? a little bit of the side hustle. A little bit more of uh, financial stability, I guess. I was making sixty grand out in Chicago, which is a lot of money, right? But uh, I think my rent was thirteen hundred bucks a month, and then groceries are a little bit more expensive. And you look at what's left at the end, and it's not much. So uh, you know, I started investigating how I could make more money on the side. And I've always been a side hustler. I'm in college, I was selling diapers, which is kind of funny, adult <laughs> diapers uh, to people because I had found out that at the thrift stores, they sell uh, Depends there. And I could flip those online for like 10 bucks a bag. So you started I, flipping Depends? Yeah, I was flipping Depends in, in college to make beer money and whatnot. So I've always had that knack for something on the side. 
And, uh, you know, I was out in Chicago for three years. It was, you know, decent money. And then I had met my wife and decided I needed to move back more close to home where I grew up in Northville. And uh, I had more connections here. Figured if I was going to do anything big, connections would come into play. So that's kind of how I transitioned from Chicago back to around here and, you know, took another job uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, same corporate type position, uh, purchasing, uh, you know, doing a lot of things with that and uh, figured out I was going to lose my job there in about two or two years because uh, they were moving operations to Singapore. And part of my job was to outsource uh, what we were doing in Ann Arbor to Singapore. And at that point, I ran into uh, the mayor of Wyandotte or Downriver Josh at the first VP meetup, and he told me, <laughs> you, should go buy, you should go buy some uh, rental properties. You can make some money. And then after that, I bought my first one in Redford. I saw that the system worked and got into real estate. So Okay. Well, let's go back on these side hustles. Sure. How far back can you go with your side hustle? It goes really far back. I used to do, uh, I don't know, I was probably seven, eight years old. I was doing magic shows for uh, either birthday parties or something like that, making 20 bucks for a show. Uh, that went to me doing magic table to table at uh, a restaurant that was in Northville sizzling sticks for a while. So always doing <laughs> something to make a little bit of uh, cash on the side. Uh, and that's just kind of how I've always been. I was selling books online and all sorts of random stuff. And this just as far back as you can remember, you were doing this. Yeah, absolutely. As what'd far you, back as I can remember. What'd your family think of this, right? I think they think of it, you know, it was funny at the time because uh, I was actually a pretty good magician and I was seven, eight <laughs> years old. I mean, I was pretty good. I had this one trick where they would chain me up. I had like four or five padlocks and handcuffs and I could get out of it in like two seconds. So they'd put a little drape over me and boom, I was out of it. Uh, so I think they appreciated the, the side hustle and the, the drive I had. Okay, because I have a theory I'm putting together, or hypothesis, I should say, yeah. that I'm putting together. Like the people, it seems like almost everybody did something entrepreneurial before they went out and got their square job and then went back to being something in business. So mm-hmm. I just noticed a lot of people on the podcast had early and young side hustles. So. Yep, absolutely. I was in that niche too, you know. So did you always want to have this side hustle or was it just to like you said beer money solve a problem or or did you just think i'm always going to do something big well i was always thinking i was going to do something big i grew up reading a lot of books of you know thinking big and making your life impactful for others but the side hustle was i saw an opportunity in the market and i just take advantage of it to either get beer money or get some spending money or just a little bit extra money for whatever so, it, you know, when it goes back to the diaper thing, I noticed that you could flip them online for 10 bucks. So I'd sell, you know, whatever many I could per week and then I'd have some money to buy some pizza or, or whatnot. So it, it satisfied my need for a little bit of extra uh, spending cash. So no, that's really interesting that you did that. I had no idea about the adult diapers. Yeah, too. it's pretty funny. That is back. hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, money's money, right? Yeah, exactly. A problem's a problem and a yeah. solution's a solution. Yep. So I, one thing I like to say is, you're only limited by your creativity, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not very creative, but other people are. So you can flip adult diapers. So now you, <laughs> I don't know, create like an itsy page for it. <laughs> yeah. Interesting time in my life. We'll just say that. Hey, it works. I love it. And quite frankly, it makes an awesome story. So, yeah. all right. So fast forward, you were basically outsourcing your job. Yep. Pretty weird, right? It is weird. Right. Mm-hmm. They're like, Oh, by the way, you got two years and your goal is to work you yourself out of a job. Did they say it like that or did they try and disguise it? There was a select individuals that were told what was happening. Uh, because of the position I was in, I was purchasing all the materials for the company. Um, and also 
you know, in supply chain, you look at operations and the manufacturing of it. And so I was one of the select few that knew it was going overseas. And that was part of my role for the next two years to figure out how to transition the manufacturing here and localize the supply base there to, uh, you know, Asian suppliers versus, you know, people in Dexter that were supplying fittings and things like that. And so I was, I wasn't privy to the information. So it was kind of, kind of bizarre, but. It is a little bizarre. Well, you would have figured it out, right? Right. Yeah. There's no way they could hide it from you. So yeah. they had to tell you, right? Yeah. And you know, it was a really good timing in my life because I had moved back for my wife and I knew that I was going to do a bigger things when I got back locally here. And so once that timeline got set in front of me, it was like, all right, get, get off the couch and start figuring it out and start hustling even harder. Oh, that's an interesting point. So you knew when the end was. Right. Was it a hard, hard day? You know, it was a floating date based on how fast we could outsource everything. And, you know, it, I think it was a three-year timeline, but we ended up doing it in two. But, uh, and they, you know, pretty much implied that it was going to be floating this whole time. But I knew I had at least two years because I knew in my head what it would take. And so it was pretty hard in my mind when it would be done. Okay. I don't know if you can remember. It wasn't that long ago, right? But your thought process from, because you could have just gotten, got another job, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, especially after that, by the way, I transitioned our entire manufacturing option, you know, everything overseas. That's something to put on your resume. Right. What made you decide, I'm not just going to go get another job. I'm going to do something different. What made you go to that BP meeting? Well, you know, reading into real estate and figuring out, uh, it could work as a as a way to make a living off of and then running into Josh and a few others at the BP meeting and then going out. I mean, immediately after I met Josh, I was like, I got to take action right now. And I think it was a month and a half to two months later, I owned my first rental property. And then uh, those tenants stayed with me and there was no problems. And I saw that I was making money and I was like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. Let's just go for it. And uh, so that's kind of what I, I sat back and I evaluated. I said, okay, I probably got two years here. What can I do or learn and make as much money in real estate so that when our ties part, I'm you know fully uh, sustainable, I guess, in real estate. Okay. And when when did that happen? Was that just recently or? No, that actually that happened a lot faster than I thought it would because after I bought a rental, then I decided I was going to go for the larger money and fix and flips. And so my very first project, I, I did very well on it, and uh, so I mean I could have floated off that alone for you know maybe a year, and did a couple other ones and realized that financially I could float myself uh, for quite some time. And so then the work performance at the day job really took a hit, you know, (laughs) because once I realized I I was good and I didn't really need them, uh, they needed me. I kind of just did the bare minimum for the last little, you know, short end of the uh, work session with them. So it was, it was good. You know, I got, I got to come in, I got paid. I did little bit over the bare minimum and did a little real estate while I was at work and was able to kind of hit two uh, birds with one stone with that. How long did you have to, did you live in that in-between world between, you know, your new life and your old? It was probably six months. Yeah. Six to eight months. It's hard to go too long though, isn't right. it? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was some times where I stood, you know, stood back and I evaluated if it made sense to even come into work anymore because it was getting, uh, it was interfering with my real estate because I had so many flips going on. I, at one point I was working the full-time job. I had three flips going on. I was pulling my hair out because I was so busy. You know, I was working crazy hours because after I would leave work, I'd go to all the rehab sites and it was insane. And a couple of times I was thinking, well, I'm just going to call my boss and (laughs) tell him to shove it. I'm not coming in tomorrow. (laughs) But you know, there was a little bit of incentive obviously, uh, to stay to the end. So that's what played into the mix a little bit too. So yeah. 
What? Why rentals right off the bat? Because Josh told me to do it. Honestly, I you know I I knew it worked from just reading online and whatnot. And um, you know when I first had met Josh, he had twenty properties or whatnot, and it was just so impressive to be sitting. He's a young guy, and he, he oh, had yeah. all this property. And I said, "Wow, geez, that's a lot." You know, how'd you do that? Well, you just start buying them. So I collected as much cash as I had, uh, liquid, and just bought one because I felt like that was an easier, safer entry for it. Um, at worst case, I was uh, had. I was living with my parents at the time because I was in between uh, apartments, and I figured if it didn't work out, I would just live in the house. So okay, that was your backup strategy. Backup like. exit strategy was, hey, if I can't get this thing rented, because that was a big fear of mine. You know, people tell me it works, but what if no one wants to rent this house for me? So I said, well, if that's the case, then I'll just live in the thing. Oh, that's and a figure good, it out. That's a good point. What? Let's let's walk through that. What fears did you have? Right? Because I mean, that is a decent paying job, especially in the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what growth opportunities there are for that, but the world's getting a smaller, smaller place all the time. Seems like there's more room for supply chain, right? You could have had a long career there. Right. What were some of the fears that you had to work through? Uh, the biggest fear was a steady paycheck, obviously, but um, are you meaning fears into the rental? Uh, all fears in general, fears right? Fears in general. I mean, it was the stability of a, a paycheck. Um the fears of my parents thinking it wasn't a, a, a good plan for me. And, uh, you know, we'd just spend all this time and energy getting a good degree in college. And almost in their eyes, it would be wasted if I, you know, went into real estate and flopped, you know, and I wasted a couple of years trying to do what I wanted to do. And then I'm set back in corporate America because how do you explain you took a couple of year hiatus to go figure it out, you know? So some real fears there, you know, that you got to fight and figure out how to, you know, win over them, I guess. Yeah. What about, what about your wife? Cause I, I found this part difficult, right? How do you convince the other, there's people listening right now and they have a spouse and or partner, right? How, how do you convince your partner to leave this? I'm doing the air quotes for those listening safe. Cause I don't mm-hmm. think a job is safe, but uh, safe, secure, regular paychecks, health insurance, 401k, all that thing to, by the way, I'm going to flip houses and make money. <laughs> yeah. And yet, it's a big transition, right? It's big. And, you know, it's not an easy conversation. Um, you know, we, we talked about what what would be the scenario if I left and how long we could float. And, you know, the, the biggest tool that I used, and I had spoke about this in other interviews as well, is I just broke down what I needed to maintain a daily living at my current pace. So I figured out all my costs and everything else. And I think it came down to about 100 bucks a day. And, I, you know, I, we sat down and we talked about that. 100 bucks a day, I could return bottle of cans, go door to door. I'll figure it out. You know, I'll float us, uh, and make things happen. She's got a ton of confidence in me and, uh, very supportive. And she's almost a visionary like myself. So she, she gets the idea and the bigger picture and the sacrifice. And, you know, it was also a little bit easier of a conversation because I had a couple flips under my belt by the time that, you know, we were engaged and we were going to commit the rest of our lives together. Um, so she saw that I had a system that worked, you know, it was making money. It's not like a total dud idea, you know? So I think that was a little bit easier of a transition into the conversation, but it's not easy. No. And, uh, she just had graduated uh dental school herself. So she's unemployed at the moment. She's going to be working in the next couple of months. So, um, convincing her to spend the rest of my life or her rest of her life with me. Uh, I don't have a full-time job that's uh, <laughs> on a, you know, W2 type full-time job. And I, we were going to go get married and all this other stuff. So, but she understood. Yeah. Well, no, I like how you broke it down. That's, a, that's an excellent point, right? First, you did a few to see if you could. 
and then you figured out what your burn rate was mm-hmm. and you're right a hundred dollars a day isn't i mean you can do that you, right there's a lot of things you can do to make a hundred dollars a day if you absolutely had to that's and i did not do any of that by the way i did it really stupid it's like oh real estate burn the bridges let's go you know? yeah i don't recommend that folks this is a much better better way to do it so the transition from a rental right because Rentals are, in a sense, easier, mm-hmm. right? Buy a nice house, fix it up, put a renter in it. They pay rent, something like 40 or 50% of people, depending on where you're at. They always need a place to rent, right? How do you go from buy, fix, rent to buy, fix, flip? Because they're kind of a different thing. Right. So the first deal that I did was obviously that rental. My second deal in real estate investing was a wholesale deal. And I had met someone at BP and said, you should check out this wholesaling. And I said, yeah, I've heard about it. I've read it in the forums. You're going to kind of walk me through what we got to do. And he goes, well, go find a deal. This is what you should look for. And then call me when you're ready. So I found a deal, locked it up. And then him and I wholesaled that and, you know, made a little bit. It wasn't a huge deal or anything. And then at that point, I realized that there's this whole other market of real estate investing of people going to find uh, wholesale deals. And I wanted to just find a property, um, cutting out the wholesale guy and going for the big margins. Cause when I got exposed to the buyers from wholesale deals, I saw how much they were making on fix and flips or, yeah. or thinking of what I thought they were going to be making on a fix and flip. So that kind of exposed me to that next world of going out, buying a property super uh, under market and fixing it up and selling it. One of the fears a lot of people have, right. And it's something I had when I started too is, how do you figure out how much work a house needs? How did you figure out how much work? Because until you do yeah. it, how do you know? How did you figure it out? How'd you know, you I had a little bit of knowledge on it because my first rental that I bought, I needed to put work on into it, you know, and uh, I had no clue about anything, how our house is built or how plumbing works or anything. I mean, I was like zero. And uh, luckily, my dad knows his way in and out of, of uh, you know, tinkering around with plumbing and things like that. So him and I did the project together. We you know rebuilt the kitchen and uh, the bath and did a lot of the stuff, uh, just him and I, and we'd buy the materials at Lowe's. So I had a basic understanding of material costs just because of that first rental. And then when you look at a pretty significant fix and flip, which my first one was, I think I put about $40,000, $46,000 into it. Um, you know, it was a daunting task, but what I did is just Googled everything. How much does a roof cost? Try to figure it out. How much does flooring cost? You know, I knew I had the house super under market value and uh, I knew there was enough room for error on it. And so I just did my best through, you know, Google and any other uh, forums or anything to figure out what it costs per square foot to fix. Man, I like how you approach it when you're, you're trying, you like, you're, you're, you're working in error because you know there's going to be error. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's a smart thing to do. I don't know why I didn't do that. Like, <laughs> when you say it, it just sounds so obvious, right? But yeah. most people don't do it. And I didn't do it in the beginning. I didn't, well, I think I have enough room here to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Did you have an exact number or you just said, hey, it's big enough to make mistakes? I knew it was big enough to make mistakes. I didn't have a threshold on it. I said, well, let's just go for it. And it was kind of back in the same situation with the rental. It was a nice property in Canton. And I figured if I couldn't sell it or things went wrong, I would just buy it myself and live there. That's a good point, right? Like, hey, I like (laughs) And that's really how I thought about it because I said, if I really screw this thing up, then I'm moving in there and, you know, taking a conventional loan on it and figuring it out. I like how I like your approach to this. So you're always thinking, what is the worst case scenario here? And right. am I okay with it? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's pretty good. Now, how do you go from one flip 
to over a flip a month, right? Because mm-hmm. obviously, I think your supply chain management training probably had something to do with that, right? But you did it kind of fast too. If we're being a lot of people, it takes a lot longer to get to where you're at. Mm-hmm. How do you go from one to more than one a month? Yeah, it's a pr- I you know I looking back, it, it all happened so quick. I, I found uh, you know the formula on how to evaluate a property, and by that time I was pretty decent at figuring out like an ARV. So I knew if it was significant under market and there was enough room in it, I was just going to go for it again. And after the first one and figuring out, you know, hard money financing and things like that, I already had all the contacts there. It was just find the next deal and throw the money at it and get some of the guys that worked well on the first job, bring them to the second. If they don't work well there, then get some new guys. And uh, it just kind of really accumulated really fast. I mean, I'm, I'm a guy that once I figure out something works, I just focus and put all my energy on it so it's not like i was just sitting around and deals were being thrown at me (laughs) i was going all through zillow craigslist you name it trying to find the next find the next and not a lot of sleep just going 100 percent at it yeah amazingly nobody just sends you like oh by the way here's this great deal yeah 100k off is perfect you'll love it yeah just sign here today and it's yours yeah Yeah. that doesn't happen that way so i think it was a lot of luck too i mean i was working really hard and some of these deals i was getting off the mls were steals and it's because i was just lowballing them and put out an offer and then two weeks later they said hey we'll take it if you can do cash and i was like i couldn't believe they accepted that but it worked offers off the mls yeah, yeah. when was this though this I'm, was uh when i first started i was nabbing them off yeah. the uh, mls yeah you can still do that it's a little a little bit more competitive today so yeah i barely get anything off the mls now yeah. but i but I, I like how you started with wholesaling too because that that's one of the things I don't know if any everybody should wholesale forever, but to your excellent point, you start wholesaling, you do get to see how other people evaluate deals really quickly. It gives you a lot of exposure to things you might not necessarily say right, otherwise. Right. It really set me up too because the deal that we were wholesaling uh, was a nice property and you could really fix it up nice and make a decent amount of uh, spread on it. But I don't think it was that big of a spread. So I really got to, when I would uh, take a, uh, potential buyers in the property, I would see what they would look at and then what their repair estimate would be. Because they would say, well, I got to put 50 into it. When I would do my Google research, I was thinking you'd probably put 30 into it. you know. And so I really learned from just walking those guys through the property and figuring out where they were looking and how much they were thinking they were going to spend. Um, and that helped me kind of hone in before, right before I did my first flip too. So it was good education on the job. Yeah, it is. It's it's one of the things I like about doing it. You get just tons of people and lots of different ways of looking at it. And I don't know why I'm so uncreative about look approaching deals, but I have a hard time thinking about it a different way. So seeing people like you and other people on just different ways of approaching deals, I find that very helpful for me. So you seem to be a little bit more creative than I am. Speaking of which, Wholesaling, not the easiest thing to do, right? Obviously, don't give any away trade secrets, right? Don't don't mm-hmm. make it too easy for people, right? But what are you doing marketing wise to get your phone to ring? Right now, it's probably you know it's mostly direct mail. Yeah, direct mail, and then you know staying current on Fizbo's and things like that. You do letters, postcards. I do a variety. I would say majority is a postcard. Okay. Now, how many times do you reach out and contact these people? A lot of times. A lot of times. My last deal, we'll just say she had a lot of other investors' postcards on the table, but because it was my seventh mailer to her, she decided to call me, and I got a 
amazing deal off this property in Troy. So yeah, that cannot be underestimated right there at the right. seventh yep. postcard. Yep. Yeah. I don't know how close you track your response rates, but I see a huge increase between one and four and four and eight. Mm-hmm. And for me, it more than doubles. I don't, do you track it that closely? Or? So I don't, that's a, that's actually a great idea. And I should probably incorporate that into my tracking metrics, but um, you know, my main tracking uh, metric is just the amount of mailers and how much response rate I got off that mailers, but I don't do a, a second, third, fourth tracking system to it. So yeah, I especially noticed cause th- frankly in the last year it's getting competitive, right? Markets heating mm-hmm. up, at least in Metro Detroit. You right. know, I don't know where everybody's listening all over the world and all over the country, but Metro Detroit, the market's heating up. It is getting, it's more competitive to get a deal. And I've noticed that everybody just sends a few and then they quit. And that's that's just the wrong approach, man. Look at you. You got got one at seven. Mm-hmm. Now, you how, how many times did you call too, right? Because... Yeah, well, I didn't call them specifically. It was only just the mailer. mailer so, so nothing, and nothing. then just on seven, she calls, and yeah. you got a deal. Yeah, the motivation changes when you know they have a circumstance in their life that that changes. So at the first six, she wasn't very motivated. On the seventh one, she'd see my name a couple different times and was ready to sell. So she called me first. Okay, that's pretty great. How many um, or approximately? Don't you know how many mailers, postcards, letters, whatever combo do you send out every month? It's in the thousands. Yeah, that's massive action. Yeah, I can't tell you how many people say, "Well, Jeremy, I sent out three hundred postcards and nothing happened." I'm like, "Dude, what's one percent response rate times three hundred?" Right? right. Yeah, you're lucky your phone rang. Period. It, it's such a volumes game when it comes to direct mail, and it's an expensive avenue to find, uh, you know, customer acquisition. But you got to do it because it it works. Yeah, it works every time. Do you have any other ways that you acquire motivated seller leads besides direct mail? Uh, Craigslist, Zillow, you know, every other channel that's open, uh, you can find motivated sellers. How do you work your Craigslist? Don't give away any two secrets. Yeah. So I, I hate, all right, I hate Craigslist. I'm just going to be honest, right? Right. Ask clowns everywhere. How do you even sort through it? Like I, I don't even know an appropriate approach to Craigslist. Maybe I'm just being biased. Yeah, there's keywords that you can search um, that are pretty common in the uh, discounted property, uh, I guess, uh, sorting. So you just want to filter it by those. Okay. Do you just pound them, pick up the phone, start pounding them, or do you Yeah, mail I'll them? contact them. Yeah, okay, yeah. How aggressive are you with your contacting? Aggressive. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's also a Keller Williams agent, so uh, never let that phone go go to waste. What, what software... Do you use a CRM at all for this? I or? do. Okay. What Do you mind sharing what CRM? Yeah, I'm going to keep that one in the pocket. You're going to keep that one in the pocket? Yeah. All right. No problem. Um, how do you forecast... Man, I'm trying to think of a better way of asking the same question. What am, what am I trying to get at? What systems, without giving away the name of the system, right? Because one thing, if you're going to send thousands of postcards your phone is going to melt, right? Right. And you need good systems to handle mm-hmm. this stuff. So let's let's approach it that way and not not give it away. What how do you manage that kind of phone volume? So the phone volume is all done through a live answering service. Okay. And a lot of people can debate which is better, but I think uh live answering service shows 
uh, that I'm serious in the business, it also makes me seem bigger than what I really am. I mean, right now I'm a one-man guy with a couple VAs, and so if someone answers the phone that's not me, they think it's a secretary or something else. So it gives me some credibility, and it makes me seem bigger. Yeah, I like live answer too. Yeah, yeah live answer or voicemail, but live it's expensive. Is, but well, it's not too expensive. But not really. Right? You, there's other alternatives that are cheaper, right? But I feel like that's the best uh, for my company right now. Okay, and they obviously enter it directly into your CRM, correct? Right? Yeah, yep. that's the way it's to all do integrated, it. and yeah. so I get notifications when a new lead would come in. Yeah. What is your delay between from when the the time they call in to when you get back to them. I try to pick up the phone immediately. I'll quickly uh, research the property, see what they paid for. I could just get a little bit of the background if they owe any taxes or anything else and then uh, call them immediately and say, hey, I just missed you. My secretary, you know, sent me your information. I'm here to talk. Let's talk. I love that. Sorry, I just missed you. Yeah. (laughs) I was in the other room buying other properties. (laughs) I like how you set it up. It's a a little bit more forethought. I appreciate that. So when when they call in, they go into the CRM, you co- you dial them immediately. What do you do after that? Because so many of these calls go nowhere, right? And I think yeah. people get discouraged, right? But there's still gold there. What do you do after that? There's a lot of different paths that I take depending on uh, the synopsis of the property, where their motivation level is and things like that. But pretty much once they're in that system, they'll be hearing from me. Okay. Until they tell me they're calling the police. <laughs> we'll just say that. <laughs> Until they give me their property or tell me they're going to kill me, they're they're going to be hearing from me some channel, either it's mail, texting, phone calls. Yeah, that's something I've been having a lot of success with is yeah. text and Facebook. Yep. Yeah, so don't be afraid to reach out multiple different ways. Um I don't know. I don't know if you do this. Being a sales guy for so long, I just automatically reached for the phone. But a lot of people just really don't want to talk on the phone. Mm-hmm. I don't. I always want to talk on the phone, but it's I don't know. So I've been having a lot of success with text and um, Facebook messages. Some with email too, although although not as much with email. So once okay, one of the questions I get to when you put a house under contract to wholesale, what do you do when you're wrong? Well, most of the time I won't put a house under contract unless I'm going to buy it myself. So it's a deal if I'm putting it under contract. I don't want to go back to them and renegotiate it. So there's a lot of people that I still have uh, numbers to and things like that that um, may work for me down the down the road in some other creative way. But at this time, it's either a deal or uh, a deal. If it's marginal, I don't even waste my time with it because right now I'm a one-man guy, um, and so I want to put my focus on the biggest profit possible. No, I like that. So you don't put it under contract unless you're going to close it no matter Yeah, what. I'm going to close it regardless uh, and either throw it up retail uh, or like wholesale it or uh, figure it out, wholesale it. But I'm going to close on it and put it in my company's name. Okay. How, when you're when you're on the call, how do you evaluate the seller and how do you evaluate the, the property? I have some uh, screening questions that, that will get to motivation levels. And then obviously the property plays into uh, effect by looking at if there's delinquent tax, delinquent water, um, just a little bit of history in the property, looking at public records, what they bought it for, how they acquired the property, things like that. And you do that before you call them? I do some of that before I call them. Yeah. And then if there's uh, a window of opportunity, then I'll dig in deeper. Okay. Cause that's something I kind of, I don't know, maybe I'm doing it wrong. 
I used to do spend like two or three minutes looking before I dialed, and then that really limits the number of people I can dial in a day. So then I just I literally just look at the number dial and I start looking while the phone's ringing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the best way to do it or not, but I mean, if you're sending out thousands of postcards, do you, do you track how long your average phone call is? Or you know, I don't really I don't do any of that kind of okay. uh, any metric tracking on phone call conversations, and everyone's pretty unique based on what their situation is. But uh, do you find that that's something valuable to know? Yeah, because it just never seems to be enough time. Like, so my by the time you do the phone call, my my average phone call length is eight, eight minutes, right? Okay. Used to be 12. I got it down to eight. I try and structure the call where I ask how much you're hoping for in the first two minutes. Thanks, Ron. I appreciate that. That shaved four minutes off the average right. in the last six months. So thumbs up, Ron. I appreciate it. Thank you. Cowper, too. They pointed me on that direction. Saved me a lot of time. But when the phone's melting and you got to not only call the new people, but I also go back and start calling all the old people. Mm-hmm. Hey, you still need to sell your house. You may be interested in that offer we're talking about, all that. Um, the time I took to do the research in the beginning just took away from the time I could follow up. Okay. And I finally came to the conclusion that if I, like for me, it's 35 phone calls to a deal. Not always, right? But on average, 35 new prospects that are motivated will end up to at least one deal. And then you start doing the math at eight minutes a call. And I don't know. I just, I don't know. I just start doing it differently, but I'm not doing a flip a month either. So your results are better than my results. So I'm wondering if maybe I'm doing something wrong here. So yeah, I'm not sure. Not sure. Yeah. All right. Maybe not on, uh, maybe you'll help me out a little bit, not being recorded, <laughs> point me in the right direction. Potentially. On that. Potentially. I would appreciate that. I'm trying to get better here. Uh, I'd rather work with you than against you too. So, all right. So, what software or how do you manage your rehabs? Uh, I'm assuming there's some software. I don't know how because I, I did it when I was doing a couple rehabs a month. That is a lot to do, right? Even full-time. Even mm-hmm. though you're full-time, you're not working a job. How do you manage that project? So you got multiple contractors, all that. Is there any software or anything you use to manage that? Or I'm actually uh, currently looking for a software. Uh, you know, there's a lot of software solutions out there. I'm still on Excel. So I have a uh, Excel program that, you know, you put in a schedule and it overlays like a Gantt chart on it that was created by someone that I stole off the internet, you know, and that's how I'm doing it. So it's pretty old school, but it seems to work, you know, it does work. uh, It's pretty simple. You put the date in when you start, when you can, you know, every little milestone and it's pretty much a software, but it's Excel. Yeah. I suck at those things. That's why I was hoping maybe you had... (laughs) They can be, I'm not going to be flipping anytime soon, but I, I remember just the nightmare of managing that many rehabs at a time. And you're doing quite a few right now. So I was like, oh, I wonder what, I wonder what he's doing and how he's doing that. So I'm still looking. So if you know any softwares, let me uh, evaluate them. Yeah, listeners, help us out. Yeah. We, so what we're looking for is some sort of project management software that would fit well with buy, fix, flip, buy, fix, rent, right? Manage it. We're not talking about multi-billion dollar deals here right most of these things could be wrapped up in 90 to most of them 90 days right maybe 180 on some bigger huge projects so let us know um send an email to me jeremy at renegade detroit and i would appreciate that bad things happen though too right of course all right especially in the fix and flip oh yeah so let's talk about when you were wrong right no because we everybody talks about all the good stuff right Mm -hmm. What were some of the mistakes you made or some of the unfortunate, uh, cause there's good luck and then there's 
bad luck, right? <laughs> right. There's there's bad luck, and I've picked myself up a couple of bad luck situations. Um, and some of the mistakes were not doing enough due diligence on the market. They were in areas that I thought I knew, but I didn't. You know, I didn't know what the competition was and things like that. Um, so that's that's hurt me in the past. And then, you know, oversights, when you go through a house and you think you've gone through everything and then bust a wall open and something completely different than what you thought it would be, you know, behind that wall. So there's, there's so many of them, uh, you know, they happen every, every project. Yeah. Have you lost money on any projects yet? There has been one fix and flip that I was basically break even. It's not too bad. Yeah. It was up in Genesee County and, uh, that's one of the ones where I've, but you know, you break even after four months of work. And so you're negative because if you're you're, paying for your time, that's a good point. I was negative virtually money wise. I was break even. And, uh, I use a local real estate guy that's in our meetups that actually sold the house for me because he knows that market well. And he made more money on the deal because he had both sides of the listing. He brought the buyer (laughs) and I was like, please cut your commission or something and save me. You know, I'm bleeding. But, uh, it was just a bad situation. I should have learned the market a little bit better. It was, it was an hour away and I thought it was a better property than it was oh that's a that's a bummer what'd you do to fix that afterwards right because you seem like a standard procedure kind of guy (laughs) don't go in that market anymore you know i stick to a more of a tight-knit market i think i learned my lesson on that one yeah although that's not too bad that's still not too bad anything any other close calls or bruises or things you would do differently in the and the mistake market you know, every time I make a mistake, I put a corrective action in place. Yeah, that's what And I I'm constantly making yeah. mistakes, but I won't make that same mistake twice. And either it's me building an additional check on the checkbox, you know, in the list when I'm looking at a property or something uh, or what. But, uh, you know, there's there's always mistakes. I mean, I can get through a couple other ones just that I over, you know, there was just oversights because I'm to the point now where I don't get an inspector that comes looks and looks at the property unless it's in really bad shape. And so, you know... I'll over, I, there's something that I won't catch and then it comes back to bite me and it's a $15,000 fix or something. Oh man. Yeah. Like, you know, oh, so that hurts. Happen. Yeah. Yeah. But I like to pad it enough to, uh, you know, I always tap, tap on at least 20% on top of my rehab budget. And if I'm still making money, I know that there's a padding for something, uh, you know, a bogey to come in there and throw me off and, uh, you know, at least have enough room in there to take care of that situation and still make a little bit of money or break even. No, I like, it's okay. That's, very, I don't, you have like some like risk training background where you're always like trying to mitigate your risk. He's like an yeah. insurance agent. You know? I'm very methodical with when I look at things. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not afraid to take on more of a high risk situation, but I do take a methodical uh, numbers approach to it because it's all it's all numbers game at the end of the day. I like that. Well, that it's probably the same question, but I'm, I think I'm going to ask it this way: How do you mitigate risk? Right. So, hey, I'm going to do X flip. Maybe it's something you haven't done before. Maybe it's a a big, right? Some of these rehabs, I'm sure, to get the good deals, they're probably some messed up properties, right? How do you mitigate risk or how do you, what what is your general process at mitigating risk as you work through? Well, I like to take as many steps as I can and learn from uh, previous failures. Like I had mentioned, different checkboxes or different implemented strategies to approach the next project like that. But at the end of the day, I'm also, you know, not afraid to make a mistake. Uh, that's why I buy appropriately to have that mistake. Um, 
So I do try to minimize it, but I'm not afraid of it. Yeah. Failure is kind of baked into this thing, isn't right. it? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There's just no way you're going to avoid it no matter how hard you try. You and better... every, every single one is different. So whatever you could, it could be the same exact house layout that you've done in the past. Something's going to be different about it. Have you had any sellers try and change their mind after they signed on the line that is dotted? Oh, yeah. All right. Let's let's talk about the ugly stuff, right? Yeah. Everybody's like, oh, and you make all this money wholesaling. You make all this money flipping. Yep. And nobody wants, very few people want to talk about this stuff. These are things that go wrong in the wholesale business. Today, Tom, you're my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking this property off my hands. I go and talk to my neighbor. I'm not going to do it unless you give me X, Y, Z. How do you handle these situations? Yeah, I mean, I've had I've had that happen to me on wholesales. I've had it happen to me on retail buys where buyers try to back out and things like that. Um, what I like to do if I'm wholesaling it, I get a non-refundable deposit. And so if they want to walk, you can walk, but I'm taking your money and that's you know paying me for my time and me structuring this deal. And uh, I've I've almost had to go to court over AMD because I wasn't going to sign the the mutual release on his AMD because I said, screw you. Yeah. You said you were going to buy it. You had the money and now you don't want to buy it. So, you know, he found out what we were going to make on it and decided he wanted it wasn't the right deal for him, you know. And uh, I made the decision that I wasn't going to sign the release and I was going to fight him to court for it. And it wasn't much, you know, it was $2,000, but I wasn't going to sign anything until he gave me back the AMD that we agreed upon. And so, yeah, I, I was strong with it. I don't let them walk. If they say they're going to It's sign, solidarity, brother. Yeah. Wholesale solidarity right here. My up. fist is in the air. Yeah. You know, they're grownups and this is business. And if we agree to something, you're going to adhere to the agreement. Yeah. It's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street, Absolutely. Folks. Yeah. One of the lines I like to use is, look, what if I did this to you? What if I called you up? You know what? I got somebody willing to pay more. I know we signed a contract. I'm going to give you your EMD back and I'm going to go sell it for more doesn't work that way no of course not they lose no. their fucking mind wouldn't yeah, they <laughs> absolutely tom i'm gonna come murder you at your head no you know so mm-hmm. obviously after you said no i'll go to court they just quit right because they didn't want to go spend the money well they still were trying to fight it and then you know we were emailing back and forth and at that point i said hey if we want to take this legal i'm fine but you're going to lose money at the end of the day because an attorney is going to cost a lot more than this two thousand dollars but i'm willing to you know go that route if you want to do it so I love it. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> then right about there. a week later, I got an email. Okay, you can keep the money. Yeah, so. shut up. Yeah. Did they even have a good reason for why they... Well, it was funny because they were going to wholesale my wholesale deal. And the first warning sign that I should have known is he used a proof of funds that is pretty common on the internet space, you know. So I had questioned him about that. And he said, well, I just use that as my office that sends that kind of proof of funds over. And I said, well, are you an end buyer? Are you going to wholesale this deal? And he said, oh, I'm an end buyer. I'm, I'm going to flip it myself. And then I think the time came where uh, he found out what the spread was and everything else and uh, just decided he couldn't find a buyer and tried backing out. So The psychology of when people find out, first of all, we don't always make that good of money wholesaling, right? No. Like, there's a lot of base hits. Lots of base hits. That pays the overhead. Yep. There's some doubles. Yeah. A few triples. And then home runs, right? Right. And they're fine when you're getting base hits. Oh, you're barely scraping by. It's good. You finally put in the effort to get a home run or a triple, and all of a sudden, motherfuckers are counting your money, right? Mm-hmm. And they're in Tom's wall going, oh, I don't know about that, right? Right. You're flipping through. I'm like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. So they literally saw how much you're going to make and change his mind. Yep. Dickhead. Yep. Yeah, that is a warning sign, right? Never again. That one's done. 
Have you had a seller try and back out as well? Well, we, you know, it's pretty commonplace when you fix and flip. Uh, you get all the realtor tricks where they're, they're going to, you know, best and final or something where they bid that up and then they know that it may appraise under value or they're going to come back to you yeah. after inspection. So they're playing the game. And it's just so frustrating when you're, uh, you know, you finally go under contract. They seem like they're, they're worthy buyers. They're ready to pull the trigger, but they're, uh, you know, they're just playing the game of we're going to come back and try to get 10 grand off after the inspection or 10 grand off after the appraisal. So it's like, no, that's the biggest <laughs> headache. Well, it's, you know, then it's a month and a half later or whatever. And it's like, well, should I just, you know, eat the 10 grand and sell it or should I put it back on the market, tell them to screw off? But every, every situation is different depending on, you know, what kind of money I borrowed and the urgency of how fast I have to sell it. Yeah. Have you tried putting in uh, an appraisal guarantee? No, but I, as of recently, I saw someone uh, recommend that, and yeah. I'm going to be doing that from now on. We just did that with uh, Bruno's house. We just sold it in Ferndale, and it went $35,000 over asking price. Mm-hmm. And they, we just said, no, look, if you want this, you need an appraisal guarantee. And they wanted it so bad, they put a $100,000 appraisal guarantee where – they would cover up to a hundred thousand dollars above the appraisal guarantee. So yeah, it's, it's, that's amazing. I'm always learning too. And I take note of any recommendations or tips people bring to me because a lot of those things can work into my business. So yeah, but, I'm always looking to get, you know, different methods of solving that problem. Yeah. That's a quick, by the way, that's also a quick way to sort out. Cause we had like 20 offers on that house mm-hmm. and we set appraisal guarantee. And then we had like five offers on that house. Right? right. So it's a, if you have a multiple offer situation too, just call and say appraisal guarantee and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. It's a great tactic. I'm definitely going to be implementing on my next couple. I learned that from Joe. So that's, that's not me. That's a Joe Delia thing. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, thanks so, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> We appreciate. appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, we do. We appreciate the the extra knowledge there. So, what are some of the? Um, so obviously, when you're when you're wholesaling, have you had uh, when you're going to when you put a property under contract, um, have you had that seller try and back out of a deal? My knock on wood, I haven't yet. Really? Okay, that's so, interesting. With all the wholesaling you've done, yeah, well, do, I don't do too much wholesaling, you know, because the reason I'm marketing is for fix and flip. Same thing. Though. I cherry pick right out of those, and then things that don't meet my criteria or whatnot, they may not make sense at the time. Then I'm going to distribute those to the list. Yeah. How did you build your list? Well, there's a lot of ways to build a list. Um, the ways you're comfortable sharing. Yeah. Uh, He's got that big uh, <laughs> shit-eating grin on his face. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've got a big list, and it and it goes everywhere. But um, originally, it was just going to all the meetups, collecting business cards, throwing their names on it, and maintaining it. I think a lot of people. Uh, don't if they try to get into wholesaling or they're new or whatnot, really get lackadaisical when it comes to keeping contacts in the same place and you know maintaining that list because uh, you know they'll do one email blast with five guys and then they'll forget those five guys' emails. But if you start adding those to a major list and where they're investing in, I think that really helps you know newbies really take it to the next level. Um, versus just you know taking it their business card and throwing it away or something afterwards. Yeah, I always wonder why people took business cards and then never called. Right. Yeah, like well, what the fuck do you want my business card? Yeah. Uh, like no, oh, I don't know. Throw it's for it networking. You should keep it and you yeah. should you know maintain that list of pro- you know accordingly so it helps you in the future. Do you use Aweber or I, I, if it's your CRM, just move right on. But I don't know if I like I use Aweber so to do my direct marketing for um, my buyers. I just use MailChimp. MailChimp. That's, that's, that's what's free, working right? for right now. Yeah. But quite honestly, I, I maintain a list that is very specific to 
where they're investing. And sometimes I won't even, I know who the big buyers are around here that yeah. I don't have to play games with. If the numbers work for them, I just give them a call and I say, this is what I got. You want it or not? Cause I'm going to go to the next four other guys that I know that are serious and are going to buy. That is an excellent point. Yep. How does somebody, cause there are a lot of ass clowns in this business, right? How does somebody become that serious person, right? Because everybody wants these wholesale deals. Jeremy, you got any wholesale deals? Tom, mm-hmm. do you have any wholesale deals? And then you have a wholesale deal, and all of a sudden you hear crickets, right? And they change their mind. How does somebody end up on that short list with you? Just experience. I've I've sold them deals in the past, and they were good for their word, and everything was you know pretty natural and fluid. And at that point, they get credibility in my book, and they go into a separate rolodex of yeah. serious buyers. And I think you just over time you you filter out all the uh, not serious buyers. The truth of the matter is if it gets emailed out, it's probably only because you called everybody and they were too busy or they weren't interested, right? That's pretty close to true. Yeah. <laughs> so folks, that's why you don't get them. Yeah. You know, the people who do and they do what they say they're going to do, get them. They're, yeah. They're professionals. They come in, they walk through a property and 10 minutes, they'll know if they're going to buy it or not. You know, it's no, uh, joking around or, you know, trying to lowball you this and that it's, you know, they're serious buyers. They want to make what they want to make. And if the numbers work, they're going to give you an agreement right there on the spot. So, yeah. and they're probably not counting your money either. Are they? They're not too worried about what I'm making. Yeah. And, and now they're I. I mean, I've bought wholesale deals where these guys, you know, they're making $30,000 on it, but if it makes sense on me, I, don't, I could care less. I'm actually happy you're making that money because the numbers still work for me. I'm going to make money on the, you know, on the back end and you know, it all works out. Everyone should be making money. If the wholesaler's making money, that's a good thing because right. he's got more marketing money and now you're going to get more deals. Exactly. I don't know. I don't know what they, they want to socialism Everyone's got a family to feed and everything else. So if they're making money, more power to them. Yeah. That's, that's, the way, that's the way it should be. And a quick way to get off that list is to start counting your money as well, right? Yep. What are the ways to get off Tom's list? <laughs> <laughs> be annoying. <laughs> be annoying. <laughs> be annoying. Try to, you know give me a low ball, things like that. It's, I don't have time for it. I know what the numbers are and I'm pretty versed in rehab budgets and things like that. So I know if it's a deal, it's, you know, a deal. So how many low balls do you get? I don't get that many. I get a lot. Do you? Yeah. Oh, you're lit. I don't know, man. Are these serious people though? Or are these just, well, sometimes, you know, someone I'll meet someone through the networking, whether it be online or somewhere and they say they're serious buyers and then I call them up and, Either they're going to try to re-wholesale my wholesale or something. They'll just give yeah. me the the standard, you know, seventy percent minus repairs, this and that type of thing. So yeah, how do you handle the co-wholesale? So for those listening, co-wholesaling is you go to Tom. Tom has a property under contract, and then you sell that property, and then work out some sort of profit split. How do you handle that, Tom? Well, typically how I've done it in the past is if I have a property under contract, I would say you can mark it up beyond what I have it marketed at this point. And if you can make 10 grand on it, good. If you can't, you know, if you make 2,500 or 100 grand, I don't care. But this is what I want to get for it. So if you bring anything above and beyond, that's yours. Okay. One of the responses I can hear already coming back, or do you let them put it under contract? No. No. What I would try the- not to because I want to be in control of the deal. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, let's explain all the reasons why you want to be in control of the deal. Because I, I do get this asked this question a lot. And I'm not sure people understand the position that the wholesaler is in. Right. Right. Why does Tom need to stay in control of the deal? Well, I need to stay in control first off because, like I explained earlier, if if I can't find a buyer, I'm closing on it myself, and that's the main reason. I have a obligation to the sellers, and I made an agreement with them to buy their house and 
And, uh, you know, I think it's my duty to, to complete that sale. If I sell if I assign that off or figure out a way to give it to another wholesaler and they don't, you know, do their, uh, duty and they don't close it, then I'm out of, I'm out of control and I'm out of luck. And I got to go back to the sellers and say, this is what happened. Yeah. That's not a fun situation to be in either. I've never had to do it, but I don't want to have to do it. So I I protect myself that way. Yeah. And there's plenty of people who do that. And for some reason, the co-wholesaling thing is just fraught with more ass clowns. It seems like so. Yeah. All right. Well, they're going to say, well, what if I bring you the buyer and I don't have it under contract and you just steal the buyer away from me, Tom? I mean, I go, I, I hear that a lot too, but I would just go back to the fact that, you know, you can ask around. I have a pretty good reputation in the business. I'm not going to screw you out of this deal. I'm pretty stand up, you know, straight shooter, or at least I think I am. And so you just have to have confidence in on it, you know, and I don't do side uh, contracts or anything else because I think it takes one deal and it burns your reputation. And so that's kind of how I handle it. Yeah, no, I like that. And you don't have to work with me. You can go work with someone else. Right. Yeah. Call somebody else. I like that you ask if you're going to co-wholesale this or if you're going to close on it. Did mm-hmm. you? That's probably something you learned after you put something under contract with someone who was going to co-wholesale. Yeah, it, yeah, right? absolutely. You yeah. get an email of your own property and you're like, "What the hell? Damn how, did it. This, how did this happen? I thought I thought it was careful. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Guess not. So every day is a new learning experience in this business. Yeah, it really is. What, what do you think are some of the tips you have for anybody starting wholesaling as far as what not to do oh gosh i'd be transparent from the beginning and don't fake it till you make it type of thing be honest with the situation because there's a lot of people that will kind of play that whole fake it till you make it and they tell you they close all these deals but and realistically they've never closed a deal ever and so that's going to come back to bite them i think um so just be honest from the from day one and I think there's so many tools for a new newbie wholesaler or whatnot, especially YouTube. I'm like a huge YouTube video guy. So like I just, when I'm working out or whatever, I just surf YouTube and look up wholesaling tactics or you know how to figure out a rehab budget and things like that. And there's so much valuable information online that yeah. there's no excuses really. You can find an answer to anything online. Speaking of which, why did you stop doing your YouTube series? It's been a, it's been a bit. Yeah, I was I got I all gung ho and excited about it, and then uh, I've been slacking. I, I, when are you going to start it back up? <laughs> I'm going to try to start it back up when I, you know, there was a lot of things going on. I had a lot of projects and a lot of excuses, but yeah. I got to get it going, dude. I like it. Thanks. It's really good. I would cut out that. 30 second intro bullshit yeah but at the same time i kind of liked it too like it's i don't know i really like your youtube channels i watched them all last night before i was like man this is kind of good and then i saw it was like almost a year since you did the last a little over a year yeah and then i got engaged and wedding planning and now i'm just making excuses but uh it, it's good and i i i plan on resurrecting it sometime. i think you're on to something with that yeah I think I like to keep it short. Most of them are under two minutes and it's just one quick little strategy or tip. Yeah. Like one of them was, what was it? How to get your um, offer accepted, like the escalation clause yep. at a highest and best situation right. without overpaying for the property. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm not going to give it away, folks. Go watch the links in the show notes. You can go it's a watch great tactic it. and it's worked well for me. It is. And it's kind of cool the way you did it. It's like two, three minutes of do this and I like it. I, I would encourage you. And if you did it, I would share it too. So okay. if you did it and you posted it, I would share it. I always need content to share to the Renegade Detroit Investor page and quality content. I don't mm-hmm. need any BS. I, I would share it if you start doing it again. Appreciate so, it. Yeah, let me know. I think it's, it's good, too. He did well. Go check it out. The link's in the show notes, folks. It's definitely worth watching. So 
What do you think the future holds for Tom and your real estate? Yeah, you know, I'm not, I don't look too far in the future. Uh, that surprises right. me. Really? Really. I mean, I, I know that uh, this this whole fix and flip and real estate is working really well right now. Um, I don't know how long I'm going to ride this roller coaster, but I'm going to ride until I get bored with it and go on to the next thing. So, Are I'm you not too worried about a crash? or No, not worried about a crash at all because you can make money in any market, in my yeah. opinion. So if the market downturns, there's other strategies to make money off that too. But, um, you know, it's more of I want to, Right now, I love it. I, it's a passion of mine. And as soon as that fire kind of dies down, then I think it's on to the next thing. Okay. So, What does your day look like when you start today? Like the structure of your day? Because when you're that busy, I yeah. know you have some sort of time blocking, right? Right. I'm definitely, I time block uh, my day pretty systematically. But uh, I wake up, you know, pretty early, 5 to 5.30 in the morning go to the uh, personal trainer, try to get in shape, you know. Then after that, I just start working uh, normally around 7, 7.30. Um, 7 to 9 is my crunch time where I'm totally in silence. I'm not, there's no uh, noise around me or anything. I feel like most of the world is asleep still. And so I get caught up on staying ahead of all the other investors around here, looking at uh, the MLS first in the morning and Zillow and things like that. And then, uh, you know, after that, then I start banging the phones for a couple hours um, till about lunchtime probably. And then setting up appointments for that afternoon. Then that afternoon I'm going on appointments and checking up on rehabs and things like that. Okay. It's pretty structured. Yeah. Well, kind of has to be when you're that busy, right? You got got a lot going on. Uh, how many hours a day do you think you're, um, returning phone calls? Returning phone calls is a different story because I make that a priority. Yeah. Um, so if I don't, if I, can't get through the the most recent leads that came in that day, then I'll go back to it at the end of the at the end of the evening, um, and that will go till whenever I'm done with the newest leads of that day. I try to if I get a lead in that day, I try to contact in that same day. Yeah. Worst case scenario, obviously try to do it in the first ten to fifteen minutes. But if time doesn't allow and it's t- towards the afternoon when I'm looking at rehab projects or something, then I'll make sure I get to it that evening. Yeah, I'm trying to give people an idea of just how much work and activity is involved being a successful wholesaler, right? Thousands of postcards. Lots of phone calls. Hours of phone calls Easily, a day, yeah. right? And it's a not a couple hours of yeah. going driving around looking at houses. Certain number of hours making offers, right? How many hours do you think you work in a week just doing your wholesaling? Not your fix and flip. Well the wholesaling really is my pipeline to my fix and flip. So it all goes to finding the deal. And then I cherry pick my fix and flips out of those and then everything else. So the time's spent for both businesses, I guess, but, um, just alone. I mean, it's, that's a lot of hours. I mean, I don't know. I work a lot of hours. I'm probably 70 hours a week. Just in, just working at least Saturdays, Sundays, you name it. Yeah. So if you're not working 70 hours a week and you're not sending, thousands of postcards out every month and you're not spending hours returning phone calls and setting appointments. That's probably why you're not getting fucking deals. Yeah. Right. And I've, you know, as of recently, I've really tried to figure out how I can offload a lot of my work. And so I've taken, I've had one VA that's worked for me for like a year and a half that does a lot of paper pushing type things, you know, doing everything that I don't want to do. And then another one that's, uh, you know, making a little bit of cold calls right now. I'm trying to onboard them right now to do that. Interesting. We've failed miserably with the cold calling thing. Yeah. How's your experience going so far with it? It's, I'm better at it. And then I think I'm going to try to figure out how to 
pin it where they're maybe just collecting information from FISBOs or something else. It's more of a data collection versus uh, asking a little bit more intensive or intrusive questions about... Oh, I like it, yeah. You know, just more of a high level, here's the facts type of thing, and then I can maybe be the closer on it. That's Actually, that's not a half bad idea. Yeah. Um, what are some of the things you think people could outsource when they're ready? Because it's a scary thing, right? It's mm-hmm. a scary thing. You, you, As you pointed out, you need to be in control. And the second you outsource something, you are less in control to a certain extent, right? It could be a scary thing for people, but as busy as you are, you you have time. You're, you're probably at least a $500 an hour guy, right? That's your goal to be a $500 an hour guy. Um, what are some of the things you think people could outsource when they're ready? A lot of repetitive tasks that you do. And I'm not going to tell you what I outsource because I like to keep that near and dear to my heart. But um, uh, anything that's very repetitive and doesn't need the highest level of education that you do in your business that you don't like doing. And how I go about it is I'll typically make a Word document, screenshots, and really dumb it down. And that yeah. goes back to my operations experience, too, in manufacturing. Um, you know, you just step-by-step, step, very elementary you know, steps for it, and then, you know, you make sure that they learn the task, it gets signed off, and then, then they're trained on that task, and then you move to the next task. But anything how'd daunting. You, yeah, how would you pick your VAs? That's not an easy thing to do either, right? Because, I mean, they're, they're all over the world. So that's right. virtual assistant, folks, for those listening, right? So that's somebody who's either remote, local, or could be international too, and they do work for you remotely, usually electronically. Mm-hmm. So how did you screen and pick your VAs? Well, I went on a website that's pretty common in the VA world, I'm sure, um, and screened, put a listing up, and then you get a lot of inquiries. Everyone wants to work, whether it's in India or Philippines, this and that. And then, you you know, you have a criteria where you can search by hours. And at the time when I first brought one on, I was looking for like the lowest of the barrel type guy. And that guy's been with me since I hired him, but uh, he was like one of the cheapest ones there very broken English, but can follow steps. And uh, so it's funny, our emails back and forth is, I mean, I can, under, I can hardly understand what he's telling me. That's why everything I do is either a snapshot of a video presentation of how to do the task or a Word document that really dumbs it down. But, uh, you know, he's like 350 an hour and works maybe 20, 30 hours a week for me. Yeah, that's hard to beat, huh? Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, I that, love it. That is, that is great. What do you not want in a VA, right? Because I'm sure, have you had to fire some VAs? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, all the cold calling VAs, good luck. <laughs> Yeah, we failed mostly from the that. Philippines. Um, their English is good, but they don't quite understand the business. Yeah. So it gets there's a lot of loss in translations that happen when they're talking to anyone that they're calling for you. Yeah, we found too that um, our our VAs that they could they speak good English. Um, unfortunately, I lived all fortunately I lived all over the world, so I could understand the accent. Mm-hmm. But they speak and they can understand, but nobody else could understand their accent because it's so it's just so thick. That's one of the challenges we had and why we stopped because they literally we would get phone calls. We can't. This guy called. I think he wanted something, but I couldn't understand it. <laughs> yeah, We're exactly. Like, I've, I've been there. I've that been didn't there. work. <laughs> yeah, and that's tough, right? You know, it's it's tough to manage that for sure. Well, a lot of people, too, are scared. How do you manage a VA, right? Because a lot of people think you have to be standing over someone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people fuck off during work, too. Right. And then they're, they're like, wait a second, I do it. So 
they must be doing it, but how do you manage your VAs? Well, the website that I use actually has an awesome management tool for it. And uh, most of the work that my VAs are doing are on a computer. And so the software that's integrated through the website will take a screenshot every couple seconds. And then you can go on, you log into which VA it's working for you that time or that time slot and at what hours they logged. And it literally shows what their screen was while they were doing it. And you can see if they're working or not. It's, it's actually pretty insane, but yeah, I feel is. bad for them over there. I mean, if my boss knew what I was doing during the, <laughs> the day, you know, these guys, every second is calculated and documented for them. So. Yeah, it's an extreme form of accountability. Have you caught somebody fucking off? And had yeah, to fire a little them? bit. I didn't I haven't had to fire them, but I said, hey, I saw you going on Facebook and this and that, like not during work hours. Yeah. And it's never happened again. So, yeah. but I don't, I don't monitor it too much because, uh, for what I'm paying, I feel like I'm getting a decent amount of value back. So, yeah, you don't, you don't want to be the micromanager. No, just try- I don't have time to be. Yeah. So as long as they're completing the task and it's under my weekly allotment of budget that I have for them, then we're good. What do you think the future holds, sir? I'm running back around to this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't believe that you don't have something bigger in mind. There's a lot of things being uh, discussed, but um, I'll definitely be owning my own business somewhere. Um, We'll be acquiring as much real estate as possible. I think my biggest focus now in where I'm at is acquiring property and holding them a little bit uh, longer than a fix and flip. And the biggest challenge right now is trying to find hard money lenders or a lender that will loan me three to five, seven years, a little bit longer term notes and really start acquiring and then hopefully put that on autopilot and go to the next uh, company or something. Well, it gives me a little let's bit Let's put freedom. that out there. What, what, what are you looking for? What do you need to do? Maybe somebody's listening who would be willing to do that. So let's yeah. just put it out there. This well, will be out there forever too. So it'll right. just keep playing. That's perfect. Right? Yeah. I'll, I'll uh, put it out there. I mean, right now the challenge has been, I've got the hard money short term set up really well. It's a well-oiled machine, but um, a lot of properties or a couple of the rentals that I own, some are free and clear, and they've, you know, I've bought them in the last 12 months, so a conventional loan's not going to happen. And you go look at some programs that are a little bit longer term in nature, but the interest rates are above 8%. It doesn't make sense to me to, to go do that. But really what I'm looking for is a three- to five-year loan at maybe 6% I could handle, and then, uh, you know, a balloon at the end, maybe a 20-year AM on it. Okay. Well, what kind of equity are you willing to leave in the property versus I like one, to keep right? all my properties with at least 50% equity, just okay. in case there's a downturn. I like to be pretty cautious on it. I'd rather not pull 75% LTV or whatever. I'd rather keep at least 50, 50% in there. So I say that's probably pretty smart. Yeah. I haven't lost my ass. Well, you know, I lost my ass at 70%. So I don't know if I would have made it at 50, but I would have had more time to deal with the problem when right. it hit, right? Gives so. you a little bit of time. And I've, I've had a lot of mentors in the real estate that have really said, be cautious for if there ever is a downturn and set yourself up for that, you know, be ready to weather the storm type of thing. All right. So you're looking for 6%, you'll leave 50% of the equity in yep. there, three to five years and some sort of balloon, right? Yep. And I've got great credit. I'll just plug that in there too. He's got great credit. <laughs> He's got a bunch of fixes. Someone loaned me some money for five years. That's it. Yeah. Well, th- there might be somebody out there, yeah. right? I mean, not everybody wants to do what we do, right? Right. And I think a lot of people realize how fucked they are. Yeah. I think they realize they're not getting their social security. If they're under the age of 45, they realize they're probably not getting their social security. I think there's been enough 401k fuckery for everybody to realize 
that may or may not work out depending on when the next market crash is and when the next time they need to retire Mm -hmm. is, right? So by the way, go to michiganpropertyrescue.com if you're interested in helping Tom out. So just want to make sure to plug that, michiganpropertyrescue.com. I think more and more people are waking up that they need to do something different and not everybody is like you and I. Mm -hmm. They're not cut out for it. They don't want to or they like their job a lot. Right. We hated our jobs, right? We wanted to do something else. A lot of people like their jobs. They just... Mm -hmm don't want to retire poor you know they yeah. like being a teacher they like being a whatever and they need money it's, so. it's tough too because you look at someone that is loaning on those kind of terms they're making money hand over fist but they're so there's such a select few of those companies out there that will do a longer term note for you on a single yeah. family home when people you know neighbors or friends and family don't know that that world exists that they can make six percent annual returns they're not used to it they think it's a scam if they hear anything over you know four percent they do yeah but you gotta you gotta educate them and say hey it's asset secured you get a mortgage on the property i get a promise note promissory note to you and you can make six percent and you're really happy with that i'm really happy and it works well so i've been really trying to call relatives and trying to lure as many people in because it it makes sense for both parties yeah it does especially if you're not going to go out and do these things right I, but if you're looking at it from a risk standpoint too, what are you going to do if your 401k tanks, right? Mm-hmm. Market tanks every 10 to 14 years regularly. What if that's during the 10 to 14 years you need to retire and you can't wait the other 10 to 14 years to get back to where you were? Yeah, absolutely. Right? You need a plan for this, folks. This is why at the end of every podcast, I encourage you to put together some sort of plan, even if you're not going to be as active as Tom or I. You need a plan. What are you going to do? And at least you have some equity stake in a tangible asset. I think that's the thing you really want to prepare yourself in the future here with, you know, who's who's going to be able to dictate what happens to money and things like that. But if you have assets or tangible items, you know, you're pretty, I guess, equipped for anything that may happen down the line. Well, I always try and encourage people to take back, even if it's 10% control back over something, mm-hmm. every percentage is less risk and more accountability in your personal life. So I encourage you to, I think you should get out there and do these things, folks. But if you really like your job and you're just not suited for it, look for some alternative investments and don't just rely on the government or your 401k because I don't think that's going to play out very well for you if we're being honest. And if it does, guess what? You're further ahead and you have even more money. So. How's that a bad thing? Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> That's not going to be terrible. So what books, habits, routines, podcasts, movies, any media do you think has helped you accomplish what you have accomplished that you would you would feel comfortable recommending to other people? Right. right. I think there's just so many of them, and I'm, most of them are – Pretty mainstream ones. I think uh, with my now wife opened me up to The Secret, which is a book. It's kind of sophomoric in nature, but the premise is really think big and uh, vision success and things like that. And that's helped me tremendously. You know, you, you envision things going really well or doing all this thing. And it was pretty funny the first time I read that book. Uh, you know, there was a, a part of it, the guy that I can't remember what book he wrote, but he said, you know, he made a goal in a year from now he was going to make X amount of money. And so I did the same thing after I read that book. I put a dollar bill and I put however many five zeros behind it, $100,000 and I dated it. And I said, a year from now, I'm going to make $100,000 in real estate. And a year later, I had made $100,000. And I think as long as you just track towards that goal, it's it's unbelievable. Um, so I'm a big proponent of that book. Obviously, The Rich Dad, Poor Dad, 
10x i'm a big grant cardone guy yeah i like grant cardone he's awesome he's just a bone crusher and i yeah he's just awesome yeah um i like how aggressive he is yeah that's really some like some of the stuff even hey we're not all the same right but it's hard to deny that level of aggression in business he just goes out and gets the business you know Mm -hmm. that i like that activity you know he's just i'm not waiting for it yeah i'm not waiting i'm going to it right that's that's infectious make it happen yeah you know after i had read that book too it was make a plan of action and just go for it go for it and another interesting thing too i'll show you on my uh cell phone (laughs) that i think is pretty cool i got all these messages here but um it's i keep my life goals on the back screen here. Dude, I love so that. So every time I open up my phone, I'm looking at this is what I want to do with the rest of my life and how much I want to be worth and how many books I want to read per year and things like that. And that was a, a little nugget from Grant Cardone. I think it's just awesome. Goals are valuable to have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know one thing Grant does too that he's so right. I don't know if you've done this. I've done it so many times. He says you always underestimate the amount of effort it takes it's going to do something. Mm-hmm. That's so fucking right. Whatever yeah. you think it's going to take. It's always more. It's way, yeah. way, way more. That's the whole idea behind the 10X book, right? You can sum it up right there. Whatever you think it's going to take, you're wrong. It's going to take a lot fucking more and just do it. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing I and love. don't bitch about it. Just yeah. go after it and go. <laughs> bitch about it later. Yeah. <laughs> don't bitch about it at all. Yeah. Or like it. I, yeah. I, don't, I like working hard. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't like working hard at a shit job, but mm-hmm. when you're working for your life, why not? Yeah, right? absolutely. What else you got there? Uh, a podcast I like uh, Joe Fairless, obviously been on his, yeah. I like the bigger pockets podcast. And then, uh, like I was mentioning earlier, I just think YouTube is awesome. It is. Awesome. I'm, I'm on it all the time. Just figure if I don't know how to do something, YouTube, how to do this. And I'm learning from it. So that's how I figured out my iPhone, my iPad, like it's awesome. all this stuff. I would figure out the, you know, I had, I had help from Steve on some of this stuff, but I go to YouTube all the time for that kind of thing. So. Yep. Awesome. Is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? Not really. You want to go over? All right. Hey man, I had a great time by the way. Nice. I, thought, I think this is fun. I got a few questions for you quickly afterwards. Um, I really appreciate the time you took out. I know, I know, I know how busy you are. So thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. You guys should definitely, guys and gals, definitely go check out what Tom is working on. Um, go to, sorry about that, folks. Go to, why did, sorry. MichiganPropertyRescue.com. No, I got them all right here. <laughs> yeah, go to MichiganPropertyRescue.com. The link's in the show notes. He was also on the Joe Fairless, which, by the way, is a huge podcast nationwide. You should go check it out. Um, he was also on Jet Fuel, please, and he does. Actually, everybody do this do this favor for me, right? Renegades, go to MichiganPropertyRescue.com or go friend him on Facebook and say, Tom, start your YouTube series back Perfect. up again. <laughs> Perfect. I'm going to put you on the spot. Yeah. There we, Grant no, it Cardone, really is I'll be good. doing it right now. I'll start it right now. It, it is really good. I wouldn't Thanks. tell you it was good if I didn't think it was good. I think I think you're on to something with that. Okay, so cool. I want to encourage you. And everybody else, go check it out. And then if you like it, encourage him to do it, right? Yeah. Here's how you encourage somebody to do it, right? This podcast is free. You want to encourage me to do it? You go and watch Tom's YouTube videos and you like it, like it, share it, subscribe, grow the numbers, right? That's how you can show your appreciation, and that's how you can encourage him to do more. So definitely go check it out. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast and find it helpful, do those things too. Rate it on iTunes too. It would really help it out. Go to renegadedetroit.com. 
If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, if you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at Jeremy Burgess, and I'm on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess. And you go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. And as I wrap up this podcast, I do, I already did it earlier, but I want to do it again. I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I know. I do it every week. It's because this shit's true. You know, it is. Do you really want to trust government and corporations and 401ks and all this bullshit for the rest of your life? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Maybe you should have a plan. I know there are distractions, mistakes, poisonous people. Maybe you've never had any money. You don't have any money to invest. You think you're going to go through this whole life poor. Pick some goals. Stick with it. Don't give up. Do something every day that gets you closer, even if it's one step. And I want to thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate your attention. I know you can be doing lots of other things right now. And until the next podcast, crush it.